Do we have any sick? Sick? Any who have sick on their hearts? Um, look around. As, keep your hands up. Uh, look around. I don't know. Is Dennis up there? Are you up there, Dennis? Yeah. Could you cut it up a little bit? Am, or do you need me to talk louder? Am I good? Okay. Um, yeah, sick. So let's let's open up remembering the sick of our church. I think I, I haven't seen Kip, so I imagine Donna probably hasn't been feeling well, and he's probably uh, with her. I don't know if anybody's talked to him today that could confirm that. Um, so let's just remember her, especially. I know she is. She was hoping to come and join us today, uh, and Kip told Adrian that she had had a fever whenever. Um, She'd gotten up, and she was just very upset over that. So let's open up in prayer for our sick, uh, and then we'll uh, then we'll start digging into Scripture. Lord, I thank you uh, again that you would allow us to come into this place, uh, that we could gather together, together in fellowship with one another, in fellowship with with you, uh, that you would encourage us with your word in the classes that we've already been taking part in, and that you would use me. Uh, now in this time uh, that I would be faithful to your word and that your people would be encouraged by the truth of your word. Uh, I ask for those who are sick here tonight or those who uh, maybe were not able to be here with us tonight because of illness that you would uh, move in their lives. Lord, um, I thank you that you are our healer. Lord, and more than bodily healing, you have healed us in a way that that we were not even aware that we needed to be healed. Uh, and as we continue in the book of Romans tonight, uh, digging into that truth, um, I am always aware every time I open this book of my own failings and my own shortcomings and my own inadequacies. Uh, Lord, and if I could be quite honest, and Lord, you know me well enough to know that uh, I'm pretty straightforward with you, uh, soft, and I feel uh, like I'm going to mess this whole thing up. Um, Lord, I know that you're sovereign and still that plagues me. I know that you're in control of everything and that the days of my life have been set long before I ever stepped foot into them, yet still I find myself with cares and concerns and worries and struggles of my own inabilities. Um, and I just want to be real with you, and I want to be real with my church family. Um, I thank you that where we're inadequate, you are more than adequate. Um, I thank you where we fall short and struggle. You find, or we find hope in you, and you catch us, Lord, and you support us, and you carry us. I just ask that your Holy Spirit tonight would move in this place, or as we dig into your holy word, I ask that uh, I would not fail. Lord, I, I ask that the preparation that I've done uh, leading up to this moment, that you would um, 
use it to bring back remembrance to my mind that oftentimes I feel fails me and oftentimes, oftentimes I feel um, if I could only remember more or if I could only think clearer that maybe I could do a better job for you, but you remind me time and time again that it is by your spirit and by your word that people's hearts and lives are changed. So as I stand here, uh, my hope is that I just present your word clearly and that I will rest in the fact that your Holy Spirit is the one who has power and that you will change lives when your word is preached. I thank you for that. I rest in that hope. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, who was here last week? So last week, last week, pretty intense at some points, um, intentionally so. I want to address that before we kind of start off today, because sometimes when I'm up here, because I've been teaching for about a decade now back there, sometimes when I'm up here, I feel like you guys are my class from back there, and all my people in class, like Cameron was like, man, I think you might have freaked a bunch of people out last week. <laughs> Cameron's been in my class for a while. Um, one thing that I do, and I think I've been preaching here long enough in front of y'all that y'all probably get this, but still I want to just make sure that you do, is that I'm intentionally pressing in on you, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to ask you tough questions, because at the end of the day, if this is what we land in, right, we're all pushing towards this, Right? So I want to press hard questions to you because here's something that I feel as a, as a preacher, and I want to say this to you as a church with me standing and preaching on Sunday nights and uh, Shane and Kip and Dustin and Kobe, they'll, they'll all ag agree with me on this 100%, I am sure, is that if I or anyone else ever stands in front of you, and, or if God ever leads you to another church and you find yourself in a church where a pastor is preaching to you and you never feel uncomfortable at any point in any sermon, run for the hills. Right? Because when we press into God's Word, it pierces our hearts. Right? So one thing that I want us to get comfortable with is being uncomfortable. Right? I want us to be good with that and not feel like man alive. I hate Landon after that message, or man Landon probably hates me or thinks that I'm dumb for the way I responded to that. Or what like we're all working towards the same goal, right? God glorified in our lives. Right? We're all imperfect and we're all in need of being pushed along. This is why I love hearing other preachers preach, and this is why I myself love preaching because wow, we get to take part in that. Like, God, for whatever reason, has chosen to, to open our mouths and His Word be spoken and people's lives actually change. And that is so huge and so exciting. So I want to uh, just mention that up front in case anybody went out feeling a little uncomfortable last week. And I also want to tell you that it's probably only going to get worse. <laughs> not every time, right? This is, we're in Romans, we're not in Ecclesiastes. So I'm not like coming up to every message like, man, they're going to 
they're going to be like, what in the world is this guy doing up there, right? So um, this this book is going to have different points in which the kind of in-your-face kind of preaching is going to come, which I would say some of the stuff last week was definitely that kind of in-your-face, like you throw up a question, and just because I maybe didn't like point your question out and say, yes, that's absolutely correct, or maybe I didn't shoot your thing down, like don't think that you're right or wrong, get into Scripture again, the whole purpose behind all of that is so that we would be just driven down deeper into God's Word. Um, so I just wanted to kind of mention that up front. Um, now tonight's is not going to be like that. So some messages are in your face. Some are going to be more kind of like student in class kind of things. And others are going to be more uplifting and just, um, I think, those that we kind of go out shouting about, or at least that's how I plan it in my head as I'm prepping for it. Tonight is one of those that I pray that I'd... I pray that this, the truth that, that's going to come out of Scripture tonight comes across clearly because it's one of those truths that when it, when it weighs on us, when, when it clicks in our minds what God's Word says here, it's one of those things that, that we should find ourselves just rejoicing over, right? Um, so that being said, we're going to be now in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And hopefully after tonight... We will be through the introduction of Romans, right? We're, this is probably like the eighth sermon or something like that. Um, but we'll be out of the introduction tonight, and things will probably pick up as far as pace is concerned after this. Uh, but there's some, there's some deep, heavy truths that I want us to kind of wrestle with and think about uh, tonight. Um, these truths are going to be concerning God's righteousness and how that is revealed to us from faith for faith. So I'm going to go ahead and read um, Romans chapter. I'm going to hold 16 and 17 like this whole time. I want to kind of read so that we think of this as as one thought because this is the thesis of the entire book. So it's important that we grasp what he's saying here. So I'm going to start in 16, but 17 is where we're going to spend uh, our time this afternoon. So Romans chapter 1. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now in verse 17, here's where we are tonight, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in it, that is in the gospel... This gospel that is shameful in the world's eyes, but is not shameful in our eyes, because as we see the truth of this gospel, the power of this gospel overrides shame so that we boast in things like crosses and sacrificed saviors, right? We have glimpsed and are chasing after something that overrides shamefulness. Right? That overrides the shamefulness of what seem, what would seem to be a failed attempt at fulfilling promises, right? Like a Messiah is going to come and this Messiah is going to come how? He's going to come and die. How does that seem like winning, right? It, it almost seems like an embarrassing sometimes story to tell. Like one of those kind of things that you would get laughed at if you say, well, my, 
my Savior died. Like who? He should be winning, shouldn't he? But then the truth that we grasp at as we see this in the gospel is that it was in this death that we ultimately will find victory, right? So this gospel, a shameful, shameful thing to the world, but powerful to everyone who believes. That's everyone, whether they're here, whether they're afar whether they know God's Word, whether they had never heard God's Word until we preached it to them. This is everyone, every person, every tribe, every nation, as we see uh, this morning, Brother Kip preached from Revelation, where we see this picture around the throne and every tribe and nation and tongue is present here. And that's an amazing hope that we should be holding on to is that the prophetic Word says that we are successful in reaching them. Right, We are successful in reaching them. So this is an everyone thing. That's, that's kind of covered what we've talked about so far in verse 16. And now we see that it is the righteousness, or in it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Right. So we're going to kind of explore this idea of the righteousness of God tonight. First, before we really go into... Uh, going to that, I want to. I want us to go back. Um, and Dustin had preached on this or through this verse a couple of uh, weeks back. I just kind of wanted to integrate this in again so that we would be reminded that when Christ came, Christ raised the standard as far as our eyes and minds and ears are concerned, as far as what righteousness looks like. So I want us to look. At the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we're just going to kind of breeze through this so that we can think about, so the kind of the idea on hand for us to be considering tonight is the righteousness of God. Because in the gospel, this righteousness is most clearly shown to us in a way that could never be understood apart from the gospel, right? So I want us to think about God's righteousness, and to do that, we need to kind of look at what Christ has said here concerning uh, the law. So chapter 5 of Matthew, this is Christ speaking, I'm going to look at verse 17. Christ says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them, right? Not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So I want us to think about that that verse that Jesus has just given us here and, and what implications that has for us. Let's read it one more time so that it's kind of fresh there. For I tell you, so Christ is telling us, unless your righteousness not is equal to that of the Pharisees, not is on par with that of the Pharisees, but unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. What does this mean for us? When we think about our righteousness, what does it mean if we're told And what would it mean for you, especially if you were a Jew hearing Christ say this, that if you have any hope for 
God's kingdom, you would better hope that your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes' righteousness. What would that immediately cause you to to think of? What would immediately emotionally, what would your response to that be? I'm talking to you. Like, Like if you placed yourself there and you're listening to Jesus and you know what you know about the Pharisees, like jokers are like, Blaming folks for not washing hands before they eat kind of thing, right? As far as the world is concerned, you look at them and they seem to have it all together. And Jesus preaching to you here says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you ain't going to make it. What would your response to that be? Despair? Would it be despair upon hearing this? If I told you that the only way you will step foot into heaven is if your righteousness exceeds the most righteous person that you have ever known. Impossible. How many of us immediately... Well, I guess I better go find another gospel then. Right? I guess I better look somewhere else. Why? Why is that? Why why would that be our immediate response? So what you're telling me is that you as kind of modern day followers, right? You know the law. You know what the law holds to. You would essentially be the Pharisee of the day, right? How do you think the Pharisees, when they heard this, what do you think that they thought? Because here's the thing, if he just said, if, you're Pharisee, if, you're, if your righteousness was on par with that of the Pharisees, then if you're a Pharisee, you're like, got it. <laughs> got it. What? You know, you'd be like, I knew I was pointing fingers at all of y'all, and I made it the whole time. But Jesus comes and says it must exceed that of the Pharisees, or what? Or what? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So not only you who would look to the Pharisees and say, I can never do what they've done, but the Pharisee themselves, looking around at their brothers, would have to come to the same conclusion that you've come to. Because the best righteousness that they could bring up as an offering, would be filthy rags. Not allowing them to step foot into heaven. So who has any hope then, if not the most righteous that the world has to offer? If you yourselves, when thinking about hearing this from Christ, say, whoa, there's no hope for me then. Right? So one thing that I want us to get, right? One thing I want us to get is that the righteousness of God far exceeds beyond the best example that we could give in our mind of righteousness that we've seen or experienced. That we have no hope in and of ourselves of achieving. Right? So, unless something happens, what then? 
Right? I want you to imagine if Jesus is preaching this. I want you to imagine if Jesus is preaching this. Now, we live after the cross, right? So y'all kind of got an idea of where I'm going to. But I want you to imagine Him preaching this when the law and the Pharisees was the highest standard that you could look to. What hope then? What chance then? And Jesus... In case you were to question this, in case anyone had questions, he goes into every single one of these things and raises the bar for each of them. Let's look at it. As we consider the righteousness of God, let's think about anger here, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But... I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. How many of us have sinned in anger? From an angry heart. Who of us? Who of us? Or maybe let's do it like this. Who's not? Who not? You know, so everybody's sinned from an angry condition of the heart. And Christ equates this to what? Not bad talking, right? Not slander, but murder. And I want us to get this because... When we get angry and we sin out of anger, we ourselves do not look at that sin and put it at the same weight that we would someone who committed murder. Right? Especially not someone who would committed mass murder or maybe genocide. But Christ raises the bar of what righteousness looks like to where as far as your righteousness is concerned, every single one of you Mass murderers. If you want to think about where does my righteousness stand. You, friend, are closer to Adolf Hitler than you are to Christ. Paul on his best day, closer to Hitler than Christ. When it comes to his righteousness. Do we get this? Do we understand this? I think for us to understand the hope that we have in the cross and what's taking place, we need to understand the weight of what it means for us to fall in the hands of a God who is just. And that all of you would be like murderers to Him. What should happen to murderers? Now we're all like, you know, maybe slap on the wrist or something. Let them slip by. I don't... And you start, you start thinking, maybe something else, right? What should happen to murderers? We all know this. They should be punished for murdering. But Christ here, and we find it hard to say now because Christ has equated what we saw as something small and minor, being angry and sinning out of anger. He equates that on the same level as murder. This is another kind of righteousness. This is 
far out of any of our reach to achieve. If just one angry thought about a brother or sister is on par with murder. He goes on. What about lust? Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And as we start digging into this, you get more and more uncomfortable. Right? Shall I ask for a raising of hands? Y'all are like, man, love, he said this was going to be an easy one tonight. (laughs) It gets better. It's going to get worse before it gets better, though. And this is the part where y'all are like, I don't know that he should ever preach again. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, here's the good news for anyone who falls into that boat. Right? You're in the company of murderers and adulterers already. Right? But that shouldn't make you feel more comfortable. Right? That, let us not be comforted together in our sin. Right? Christ by no means is trying to comfort us in this. I, w- I want you to get that. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of old... You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So now we see the switching of things. So one is a raising of the level of what it means to be evil or sinful. And then on the other, a raising of the level of what it means to be good. Both of which you lack. Both of which you're in need of. What does he say here? This is kindness at work here, right? What should happen to someone who injures us? What's the natural response? What do we say? Revenge. It's what we want. Or at least just make it right. Maybe not revenge, but at least just make it right. What does he say here? So, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The slap on the cheek was an insult, right? So take insult. How many of us are that good? And when somebody does us wrong, 
It's not our immediately our our immediate response to want to to say something about. Let somebody say something bad about us in front of us, or God forbid, in front of people that we think think highly of us. And the first thing that we do is try to cover ourselves, or try to make ourselves look better, or try to whatever. Right? Jesus is raising the standard of what righteousness is to a whole other level. Verse forty three. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Seems right. How many of us does that seem fair? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. It seems like it should work like that. What does Christ say? But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Who, who measures up? To this standard of righteousness. I'm I'm questioning this. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So we even when we do good, here's I want you to get this. Even when we do good, oftentimes we do good for evil motives. Right? When we give, we want to be seen or we want it to be known that we gave. When I serve, I want you to see in every way that I serve. If I go visit, I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to tell you I went to visit somebody. If I give to somebody in need, I'm going to tell you that I gave to somebody in need. Because I want you to know how good I am. Right? Is this not the nature of our hearts at least before Christ, and I would even argue that this is being worked out of us today also. But at the bare minimum, this is exactly who we were before we ever knew Him. Unfortunately, much of that hangs on. He says this, so instead of trying to tell everybody you're good, He says this, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is motives. This is inner being stuff here. Right? And when we think about ourselves, when we measure ourselves up by the standard that Christ has set for us, do you know what we find out? That our righteousness does not in any way measure up. So Christ is just going on to tell us through His preaching here, what He told us at the beginning of that. That your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. How many of us have that kind of righteousness? We could go on to prayer. Many of us, when we pray, we want it to be heard or we want it to be known. We want it to be trumpeted. But He says to go and pray in secret. When we fast, if we ever fast, we want it to be known that we fast because, man, if I'm only going to do it once in a blue moon, I at least want to get some credit for it, right? Like somebody say, man, you're looking awfully scrawny today, Landon. You've been fasting? Not lately, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> That's evident. I've not been fasting today. I can't fast. My mother-in-law's here. <laughs> <laughs> you don't do it to get credit for it, but Mary Kane, <laughs> she cooks the absolute best sweet potato casserole on the planet. So if I were even planning on fasting today, when I saw it, I would have been tempted to be on it. 
And I know you don't do it to get credit for me. <laughs> but just in case you did, I'll post that on Facebook. No, Man, <laughs> honesty tonight. Let us, let us see in this, right? Let us see in this, friends, that our righteousness doesn't cut it, right? And here's the beauty of the gospel, right? Here's the beauty of what's revealed in the gospel, is that it is not our righteousness in which we stand before God. I want you all to get this. And it's going to take us, we're going to say it tonight, and then we're going to dig and find it out through the course of this study. But I want you to get this, that when you stand before God, God sees you as He sees Christ. This is huge, friends. And I want you to get this, that when Christ was hanging on the cross, the full wrath of God was poured out on Him. Because as He did pour it out on Him, He saw you there. Do you get that? Now we're going to talk about a couple of ideas here tonight that I want to kind of throw out at you. You may or may not have ever heard the, the word imputation, right? In the gospel we find this truth that comes out that is what's called double imputation, okay? So if, if you're curious about that, I'll say the word again. You could Google it or something. Imputation. What does it mean to be imputed something? It means essentially something is credited to you, right? So for something to be imputed to you, you get credit for it. And it's, it's even deeper than that, which we'll see. So Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. And your sinfulness on the cross was imputed to Christ. Making God two things. Just and the justifier of those who place their faith in Christ. Right? This is, we're going to see this as we get over into chapter 3. We're going to mention it tonight. That God is both just and the justifier. And in that idea is this idea of imputed righteousness to us, justifying us, and imputed sin to Christ on the cross. God is just. And that's what we're going to start there. We're going to kind of explore this idea of God being just. And we've mentioned this a couple of times, I think, in past sermons. We're going to start exploring it maybe a little more, uh, maybe a little more in depth tonight. And again, like I say, we'll have time. If you don't understand this, or if it seems maybe a little bit confusing, get with me after the sermon. Or you know, you could wait, or you could study your Bible. Um, these kind of ideas, even though there's been kind of these technical jargon kind of given to it, the idea is there in Scripture, and honestly, you don't have to know the technical jargon um, if you know the truth of what we're talking about when we talk about these things. So, for in it, this is Romans chapter 117, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So how is the righteousness of God revealed? We've kind of spent a couple of minutes here looking at just how high the standard of righteousness is through the preaching of Christ and the Sermon on the Mount. Now I want us to start thinking about this 
in terms of the way that it's being fit in here into the context of what's being said about the gospel here in Romans. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not only that, but it's revealed from faith for faith. Or some might translate from faith to faith or from faith unto faith, right? This idea of faith and progressive increase here. As it is written, and then Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted, uh, the righteous shall live by faith. So let's examine how the gospel shows the righteousness or reveals to us the righteousness of God. Apart from the gospel, I want to ask you this. If you were to just take the Old Testament, and you were to look at God throughout the Old Testament, and you extracted away, and you just kind of handicapped yourself and said, I'm not going to think about Christ as, as I'm reading these things. You're just looking at it. And this is why oftentimes when the world looks at the Old Testament, they find what's quite true about it. Is it seems very much unfair and unjust. Right? Why would He wipe out one group of sinners while keeping another group of sinners? That's what it looks like. Do we get that? Do we understand that as we read through the, that Noah wasn't a just man? Abraham wasn't a just man. And don't think that I'm like being heretical and saying that. I mean, go back and read it. You got sleeping with your kids and you got like all kind of crazy stuff you find all throughout Scripture about all these people that we hold in high regard. Man, half of these people you wouldn't want to be your buddy because they might sleep with your wife. I'm serious. Like, these are not, like, overall just good folks. Look at David. Like, the highest of all of them, right? What does the guy do? You think I'm kidding? He slept with somebody's wife. Right? And then murdered. Like, these... So what was God doing? So you get some that are wiped out in the flood and a handful that get on a boat and get off. And what do they do? They get drunk. They go off sinning again. So I want you to get this picture that it would look like apart from if the cross had never happened, God would be an unjust God for the decisions that He made along the way. Do you understand that? That the cross is the thing on which everything hinges. Do you get it? Do you get it? How unfair it is to open the earth up and swallow some people in while other people who have sinned, you don't. Does it not seem unfair? Or is it just, maybe I'm reading it wrong. Maybe I need to get yet another translation to read this thing through in. Has anybody got one that, that maybe doesn't have all those sinful things that all those righteous people did? And everybody's has got the same thing in there? Then answer me this. Does it not to you then seem as though God might have been a little partial? I see some shaking of heads. Can we say yeah? Can we say yeah? Why was He partial or to who was He partial? He seems he was partial to Abraham and all those 
that came down through him. Until we get to the New Testament. And then he's like, gotcha! Y'all thought you were good, right? That's what it seems like. Paul has to deal with that in three chapters in the book of Romans because honestly, that's what it seems like. Seems like he was being all good to this one group of people and now Jesus comes on and saying, he's like, y'all thought y'all had it. Psych! You know, they're just kidding. I mean, is that not how it seems? So, then do you, I want you, I don't want to be like leading you to this conclusion. I want you to this be like, okay, I, I see where you're going. That it, that it would seem as though maybe them believing that God existed or believe that He would keep His promise, maybe that seems a little unfair. Or does it? It's a question. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that <laughs> they wouldn't all that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, we're going to wipe the Egyptians out, right? Because they're sinful people. And then we're going to wipe the people that you brought out, of Egypt out, in the wilderness for 40 years, except for only a small remnant of these make it in. And we're going to see this kind of picture of this thread of God doing something, and ultimately that thread leads to the cross. That thread leads to the cross. And it leads to the cross, and then it explodes out through the church to all peoples and all nations, right? So this is a big thing that's going on throughout Scripture, and what we're going to find is that in the Gospel, we find God to be just. Where we look at the Old Testament, and there will be some things without the, without our knowledge now of Christ, there will be some things that you'll be like, man, that almost seems unfair. Until you know who people are, you know who God is, you know that everyone should have been wiped out from the beginning, like as far as what we deserve, if we look at God's righteousness and how heavy and weighty it is, then every man, woman, child that has ever lived falls so far short that it is, to call it embarrassing is to not give enough credit to how embarrassingly short that we fall of the righteousness of God. Right? Yet God, in undeserved kindness, spared. And He spared who? Right? Again, I want us to get this idea of God making promises to people who are undeserving of promises. And God keeping promises to these people. And them being counted righteous, not because of the works that they've done, or not done, being counted righteous because they've placed their faith in the one who will keep his promise. Right? And this is this theme, if you if you go back to the very beginning, you'll find God making promises from the beginning. Keeping promises from the beginning. And justifying himself and us in the cross. Right? And this is what we're gonna. This is what we're gonna see. To to kind of let this point sink in, this first point of God being just. I want us to go over to chapter three of Romans, and we're gonna get here and dig in to it later. But I just want to bring out that I didn't make these words up. Him being just and the justifier. Romans chapter three. Um, I'll start in. I'll start in verse 21. Um, the verse in particular we're going to be looking at is 26, but for it to 
kind of start making sense, I want us to just read to that. Verse 21, Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That should be clear from the Scriptures that we've read already. It should be clear from all that we know about Scripture that we've read in the past. And are justified, verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Now I want to make a distinction here. Gift, nowhere does it say free, right? Because it cost Christ His life. And it's given as a gift to you. Through the redemption that Christ, or that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, who put forward? God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That was to show God's righteousness. I want y'all to see this. I want y'all to, if it's up on the screen, yeah, or if you're following along, In your Bibles, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Do y'all get this? What what should happen to the sinner? Punishment, right? Justice should be had, true? And if God is just... What must God do? He must punish the sinner. There must be punishment. Right? If God is just, and we know that when someone sins or commits a crime, that they are to be punished. So God, looking back at like David, when he commits his first sin, what would he be worthy of? Death. Every single one of you, when you committed your first sin, I'm not talking about your sins after you heard the gospel. I'm talking about the first time that you ever sinned. What was due you? The full and complete wrath of God. Full and complete. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. Yet God is patient and kind and loving. And all of these things have worked together for us that we could experience His grace poured out through the blood of Christ. It could come no other way. I want us to get this. I want us to understand this. God could not sweep... And this is why... Right? I want you, if y'all have heard me say that God couldn't sweep it under the rug, and if you've ever thought, why couldn't He just sweep it under the rug? Because what about Uriah? Right? Who's Uriah? That's the one that he slept with his wife and then had him killed. What about him? God, you play in favorites when you let people get by. God is just. So he must punish sin, not simply overlook it. Yeah, this is what we find in Scripture. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. Did He pass over former sins? Yes. Whose? That's a question I want you to dig into. And I want you to think about. And I want you to study about. And I'm not going to give you all the answers. <laughs> he passed over former sins. Verse 26. It was to show. This is speaking of him giving Christ as a propitiation by his blood. It was to show, verse 26, his righteousness at the present time. That's at the time that this is going on, the time that the church is being founded, the time that Christ was placed on a cross and died. It was for that time and now bursting forth into our time or continuing on to our time today so that he might be just. Just in what? Sin must be punished. Sin must be punished. And I want you to get this. I want you to get this. That every breath you breathed and every breath that was breathed by someone who sinned and never came to Christ. This is everybody. Right? This is not just those who are in Christ. Everyone who breathed the breath after their first committing of sin experienced God's grace and not crushing them in that moment, but allowing them to live lives. Understand that. God's grace is so deep. Gives us so much more than we're deserving of. But none of those breaths could be given. Not one extra day or opportunity to know Him could be given without stretching or pushing, or questioning His justice. And if He had simply swept under the rug all of those sins, all of my sins, all of your sins, then He would be unjust and unfit to be God. So He must punish Christ. And Christ chose to be our propitiation. So that makes God both the just and the justifier. Can I get an amen? This is so weighty. Let's go back and look. So this is the first way in which the Gospel reveals to us the righteousness of God. It proves to us that God is just. And it shows to us as well that He justifies those who believe in the work of Christ. This is so big. Let's flip now over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now I want you to think about that idea that I'd mentioned earlier, that idea of double imputation, your sin being placed on Christ, or we're going to see that, that you could quite literally say Christ was made sin for us. This is what Scripture is going to tell us. 
and the idea that Christ's righteousness is given to you. This idea here we find uh, throughout the book of Romans. Um, we can find one scripture here in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that summarizes this idea. So if, if you're not one for remembering kind of these... Um, these phrases like double imputation, if that's not your thing, memorize this passage of text because it's got it. Verse 21, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him, man, a lie. Read ahead. Read ahead. Because I want, when, when we hit this, it to sink in. Read ahead as I go back and I read Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Leave that up, Second Corinthians, if you would. I'll read Romans here. That way, if you're looking off the screen, you can see Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I'll be in Romans 1, 17. For in it, that is... In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Christ speaking here, or Scripture speaking of Christ here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, says that for our sake He made Him, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin the one who stood up to that test, who if we measured the standard of God's righteousness, it would be the picture and spitting image of Christ. That one who knew no sin was made sin for you. Because your righteousness could not measure up. His righteousness does. Not only that, and this is the revealed here, Righteousness of God is revealed from faith. Get this. All of this, Him living, dying on the cross, no sin, so that in Him we might become, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you get that? Do you get that? That in the work of Christ, sinful as we are, failing daily as we do, that when God looks at us, God sees no blemish, no mark or imperfection. Because the spotless Lamb of God laid His life down so that God would be just and the justifier So that we might become the righteousness of God. Would you say that with me? Friends, that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about how He looks at you. And this should transform that. This is why 
We're told in Scripture that we can now enter the Holy of Holies boldly, friends, because if we had spot or blemish on us in the eyes of God, we would be struck down the moment that we put our hands on the veil to step through. But the Lamb of God has torn the veil so that we can walk boldly into the presence of God. And we can walk boldly into the presence of God because we know where we stand with Him. And it is not in the work that we did or did not do. It is in the completed work of Christ. Don't doubt it or question it. Because when you do, you question whether or not it was enough. That's not it. And that's not all. Not only are we made the righteousness of God, not only from that first moment of belief. Now here's the thing. As we dig into this Gospel, some of you, most of you, probably already know Christ. So you're probably going to be on that second spectrum of things where this is spurring you on into holiness. But if any of you do not know Him, upon the first belief in this Gospel, you are reborn. And you are set on a track in which your life will burst forth with new life. Will burst forth with it. The fruit of the God, or the fruit of the Holy Spirit will be made manifest in you. Do you get this? From first faith to the last faith. From faith for faith. I want you to get it. I want it to click that it's not a one time thing. But the Holy Spirit continues driving us deeper and deeper. It's not a moment that you experience. Because that wouldn't be life. Right? It's life that you experience. Right? It's life that we've been given. The righteous shall live by faith. Who's the righteous? Do you believe? Do you believe that Christ paid the price that you could not pay so that you could become the righteousness of God? Do you believe that? We're going to close in prayer, and then in worship. My prayer is that if there's any of you who have not known that up until now, that you would understand that faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. I've tried and I try to read repeatedly so that if I fail in my attempts, that God's Word will land on some of you. Believe it. It will transform your life. And by it, you will find life.
and you know you will know what it is to live. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you uh, for this day. Uh, I thank you for my church family here. Lord, I thank you for your gospel. Lord, I pray that as we continue to study your word, that your word would bury itself deep in our lives. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take each truth that is presented out of your scripture and that it will break stony places in our lives. That your truth will take hold for some that maybe it has never taken hold for and it would fertilize others who are growing in new life. Lord, if there are any who sin has maybe hindered them or maybe a, a wrong perception of what the gospel is has made them live a life of just trying to be righteous without never knowing the one who is righteous. I pray that for those that your Holy Spirit would uh, open their eyes. Um, Lord, I pray that we would uh, be grounded in your gospel and that it would burst forth in our lives um, when we go to our workplaces, that it would spill over there. When we go to our homes, that it would spill over there. That when we go among our family and our friends, that it would spill over into every aspect, every area of our lives, that it would just transform Lord, that from the first time that we believe that to now that your Holy Spirit has been working and leading and guiding us to this moment, to this day, and I thank you for whatever parts you would allow me to play in the journey of these brothers and sisters in Christ as I open your word, knowing that your word, Lord, it is powerful and that it cannot go out and not have effect and I thank you for that, and I thank you that you would uh, use me um, as inadequate as I often feel. Um, I love these moments. I love that you would allow me to open your word. I thank you that you've given me a mind though I may see it as inadequate, that, that it can know you. Lord of all creation, the one who can know you, the one part of creation that can know you is the one that has rejected you. You are wiser and higher than us. And your gospel goes forth to this place and many other places in this state and in this world. Lord, I pray for the other believers that we would be made bold by you. That we would share your gospel where your gospel is not yet preached. It's in Christ's name and for his glory.